Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, welcome back to Heard Tell. One of our favorites, Gabriella Hoffman. We're going to consider the lobster. See what I did there? No butter involved, though, because this is TV and radio. How are you, my friend? Good to see you again. Good to see you, Andrew. I'm looking forward to seeing you in D.C. this week and formally connect. And really happy to talk to you about this lobster situation, because even if you don't live in Maine, this will affect you one way or another, whether you consume lobsters or you're sympathetic with the plight of these hardworking individuals. Yeah, I'm uh, going to be at the Young Voices thing where I'm going to lose to some very talented people for an oh. award I'm up for. Uh, th- you hit it exactly right. I think fishing conservation is a success story when it's done right. This is a known formula. We can go back to the 90s when they started doing this. If you successfully conserve fisheries, the fishermen make more money. There's more product. The fishing grounds are healthier. The fish populations are healthier. The environment's taken care of because all of this gets regulated and oversaw by the government. So everybody's doing things the right way. This should be a success story. Why are we still banging our head about what is and isn't fishing conservation in the United States and America? I think it's attributed to the fact that we're still, in terms of environmental philosophy, there's still this inclination, especially among people on the center left, to promote preservation under the guise of conservation. And when you do this, you're pitting a different conservation stakeholders against one another. So you're essentially pitting, in this case, Maine lobstermen who are great stewards, generally speaking, of the lobster that they harvest and that they tend to. It's a 150-year industry, so they have to be, against the endangered North Atlantic right whale, which is in a very perilous situation. There's no bones about that, of course. There's only maybe under 350 individuals left. These whales are very protected. They have the strictest Endangered Species Act protection and Marine Mammal uh, Protection Act kind of barriers and, and labels on them. So they're very highly regulated. That's another conversation. I wish people would have a conversation about that. It doesn't mean you take the whales, but it we have to look into seeing what is actually failing the whale. Is it lobstermen or is it the government? What's really at the odds here? But they love to hinge it on the lobstermen. So I think over the course of the last several decades, there's been a battle of gear entanglements and whether Maine lobstermen should update their, let's say, equipment to cause fewer entanglements and fewer, uh, fewer rather, whale-human conflicts. So the Maine lobster industry, by all accounts, has made accommodations. They've improved their gear. They've tried to reduce their footprint, tried to reduce entanglements with whales, and their slight change of hand, or their rather changing of techniques, has led to fewer conflicts. And in the last 20 some odd years, they haven't been attributed to the demise of the whale. There's been no known recorded conflicts that can go back to Maine lobstermen. 
because regulations would make it so uh, and under the endangered species act there's uh, the way that uh, Fisheries are regulated when you're involving, let's say, lobster, even though lobster is not endangered. But if it's relating to like the right whale, how do these uh, fisheries related industries kind of make sure that they're not encroaching on these endangered animals? So they have to go through various different hoops and barriers and follow regulations stemming from wildlife law to environmental law to be able to exist as an industry. And today, even with all the attacks, her uh, rather lobbied at these um, or volleyed at these industries, particularly, um, I think, what is it? The Biden administration is targeting 10 fisheries in particular, including the Maine lobster. And, and they're not the only one, but the Maine lobster gets the most scrutiny. And they say that they have to reduce their risk reduction by 98%. Um, the most recent rule change says by 90%, but a figure that a lot of the industry players have been using is 98%. But 90% is what one of the most recent rules about the Atlantic whale plan um, stipulated there. And so these lobstermen have made all accommodations. They've updated their gear. They've followed regulations, even at the expense of their livelihoods. They've seen years probably buoyed from very prosperous years to very not so prosperous years. And their livelihoods have hinged on how many regulations they are subjected to. And because they've made accommodations, they're willing to go along where it's reasonable, of course. But when these demands to reduce reduce risk by 98%. It's it's untenable, it's unrealistic for them to be able to achieve this. It's asking a lot of them. They've already gone through so much to reduce conflicts. There's no evidence of them contributing to the whale's demise. They're avoiding the whale and having conflicts with it. And if they, they understand, like any other conservationist, if they are imperiling this whale, which is in a very dire situation as a species, as a whole, everyone recognizes that. But if they were to make the whales plight even worse, they wouldn't exist as an industry. Under the Endangered Species Act and other environmental laws, they would already have been regulated out of existence. So they know that they can coexist and they want to coexist with the whale. But they've also been pointing to different evidence, and we can go more into detail, that they're not directly entangling with the whale whatsoever. Migration-wise, the whales are not necessarily feeding in the Gulf of Maine much anymore. And so the, even when, let's say, um, so yes, there's Biden regulation, which we can go more into. There, there are several Commerce Department policies, this risk reduction, and then there's also a biological opinion, which also kind of enhances this risk reduction uh, demand or kind of regulation that they want to impose. And then you have, because of kind of nods from the federal government, different special interest groups or consumer interest groups, as they like to call themselves, but I think of them as special interests, um, different big box stores and I would say food delivery services like HelloFresh, um, Blue Apron and Whole Foods took a nod from the Monterey Bay Aquarium, which has nothing to do with red lobster. They don't study red lobster. It's on a different coast, of course. And then they put out this red list on their seafood watch list that says you can't eat lobster, even though the fishery is okay. But this fishery in particular is known to interfere and, and be endangering this will. And again, no evidence of that. So that creates a lot of problems. It defames the industry. It defames the character of these hardworking men and women who go through grueling lengths to be able to harvest lobster. And they're responsible for 82% of the U.S. lobster catch, a very big portion. And people who love their lobster may bite the hand that feeds them if they go along with wanting to regulate them. And then in addition to this red listing of lobster, another thing came down from a U.K.-based nonprofit called the Marine Stewardship Council. They revoked the Gulf of Maine certificate saying that, again, the fishery is not sustainable. 
lobstermen are endangering the whale. And then they concluded and, and conceded rather that there's actually no evidence of lobstermen hurting the whale, but they still went through with revoking their certificate. So again, um, defaming the industry, misrepresenting their work, blaming them for the whale's plight. But there are other causes of this whale's demise and it's not from the lobstermen. So it's it's a typical battle. We're now seeing it play offshore. We see these battles take place onshore with kind of predators like bears and wolves, but it also similarly is found offshore in situations like commercial fishing, whether it is harvesting blue tuna or main lobstermen in this main lobster in this instance. So it's it's not a new battle. It's just one that's been brought to the forefront more and there's a lot to unpack from it because people just thought okay, it was just these companies going woke. But they were getting nods from the federal government in a sense, and they've all kind of been these these special interest groups who triggered these lawsuits, then had federal lawmaking kind of reflect their lawsuits. And then it goes to these consumer groups who have big platforms and big microphones, and then they're misleading the public about whether or not lobster is safe to consume because of their alleged misgivings and alleged wrongdoing in this situation of the whale. But many scientists and experts have come out against attacking lobstermen and the lobstermen have been defending themselves those poor people they've had to they're they're at risk of losing you know financial supports so the local banks and and mainers have been coming to the support of these individuals various different credit unions and banks have been giving them large non denominations of money to fight these lawsuits to help support them because this employs 4500 people indirectly directly it's a 1.4 billion dollar industry that's at risk of going away it's not so much the monetary contributions they make but also just the history in this country, when we lose industries like this that have been there for a long time, that have a culture and a kind of creative bent to it and, and has a purpose too. It's, it's a purposeful industry. It's supplying catch to people. People love Maine lobster. Maine lobster is delicious. So to see something like that, a long-standing industry be under attack and potentially on the threat of going extinct, it should worry and, and cause pause for a lot of people, whether or not you live in Maine. So that's kind of the runaround of, of the situation, an, an old problem with a new fresh set kind of eyes and then ears. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. A lot of these same players, Gabriella Hoffman joining us, we've seen them act differently, though. You talked about them bowing to special interests. Same groups, NOAA, uh, National Marine Fisheries Service. Same area, New England, right? Back in the 90s, it was not lobsters. It was New England scallops. And they worked with the grocery. They had to shut the fisheries down for a little bit. That's in the 90s. By 2001, it was fully rebuilt within a, about a five-year period, a little less than. It's now one of the most profitable fisheries in the entire world, especially with scallops. Same area, same players, same everything. Look, we know this stuff works if you do it right. How do we get the special interests and the politics and what's good for the environment and the fisheries and good for the workers who depend on these industries. And you already just mentioned it. 
the this is a core food group thing. I know people think lobsters. Oh well, that's a high end food group. Yeah, but that goes through you know distribution centers. Mm -hmm. That goes to restaurants. That goes to banqueting things. That goes to the White House for the state dinner with France for two hundred main lobsters. You know that, and we're joking about it a little bit, but that's a supply chain, and we've already yes. been learning the hard way that supply chains are important. There's no excuse that what we have done before in the same areas with a similar situation with a similar crustacean works. Why? My same question again. Why are we banging our head on the table trying to figure out something so simple? And I know the answer is politics, environmentalism. Why can't we just understand that good conservation is always good environmentalism, but environmentalism isn't always good conservation for both businesses and for the environment at the same time? then these preservationists would not be raking in a lot of money <laughs> as they do creating an alarm over a perceived problem, but an easily debunkable perceived problem. It's it's their bottom line. You see these people sue and sue and sue and their, their evidence is being challenged now or their claims are rather being challenged by scientists, other reputable sources because people are coming out of the, and, and even NOAA fishery scientists. I had um, kind of done some more research and I lightly alluded to it in a recent town hall column expounding on this. But there are several NOAA fishery scientists who've said from recent years and more recently that you can't hinge the blame on Maine lobstermen because these whales are not migrating in the Gulf of Maine so much and they're not inhabiting it in periods of rest when they're not migrating. They're known to be going towards Canada, to other portions of the Atlantic Ocean, and that's where they're inhabiting. And there's very few instances, almost rare even, of any recorded conflict between the whales and the Maine lobstermen. And so even though that evidence is presented and it's there, these really powerful special interests continue to lie and defame this industry because they have the ability to. They know how to use the court system. I think a way to change this is reforming sue and settle laws, the Equal Access to Justice Act. There is an appetite to fix this law. It's kind of a um, obtuse law. It's from the 19, late 1970s, early 1980s. And originally it was meant for protecting consumers. Um, let's say they were wrongfully done by something. So you could petition the government to get some sort of reward for whatever grievance you have. But it's been weaponized by people, especially lawyers, uh, who can charge a pretty penny for their services. And they exploit that law and they find ways to use it. They use advocacy groups. They find individuals who have been supposedly wronged. And then they they use that law, weaponize that law and sue and sue and sue. And some of the judges reject those court cases, but then they're not, they're relentless rather. Uh, they don't give up. If they lose in a lower court, they try to take it to the court of appeals and then ultimately to the Supreme Court. But they're able with the help of very powerful lawyers and a lot of millions of dollars from foundations, special interest groups to be able to dominate news coverage and kind of define the narrative here because of how much money they have. However, when you unpack their work and you unpack their claims, None of it holds up in the court of public opinion. And the main lobstermen, unfortunately, are on the receiving end of these vicious attacks and this vicious slandering and libel that is coming from these individuals. They're not wealthy. A lot of these people, um, they, they may be servicing, let's say, a, a wealthy clientele because lobster is a lot more expensive than, let's say, other things we get in the chain or the supply chain. Um, it's, it's a lot easier. I, I, maybe it's a lot easier to procure beef and chicken. Um, even with inflationary prices. But lobster is seen as kind of obviously a novelty item, um, but everyone can eat it in Maine. Regular working people eat lobster too, um, even though it is more expensive. And it's expensive because of the the process that goes into harvesting it. I've done crabbing 
And I understand why now crab cakes are really expensive in the grocery store because you have to harvest the crab. You have to lay down the pots. You have to pick them up. You have to then uh, deconstruct the crab. You have to uh, dress them, take out the meat, do this. There's a lot of things that go into it. Same with lobstering. And I'm hoping to see that in the region. I'm, I'm going to go talk to some mean lobstermen sometime in late spring, early summer next year. Um, trying to finalize those details soon, but to really learn about the industry and see the safety measures and precautions they take. But it does come with reforming some laws. I would hope that um, people outside of the area, this is kind of my personal thinkings of this, and I think it even makes sense from a journalistic standpoint. I think people who are sympathetic with the plight of the Maine lobstermen, who understand that they're good stewards, that they're conservationists. One Maine lobsterman, I think it was on Jesse Waters' program on Fox News recently said, we were conservationists before it was cool. And that is very true. These people inherently want to make the resource a lot better. They don't want to impede on um, wild marine biology or marine wildlife. They want to coexist with them. And they love seeing wildlife. Anytime you go fishing offshore commercially or recreationally, you love seeing birds flying. You love to see uh, swells with different fish. You like to see whales submerge and, and emerge from the surface of the ocean. People like that. And, and it's they're an important part of the ecological balance. Like, the lo lobstermen know their place in the ecosystem and they can't exist without, you know, secondary tertiary animals and, and these critically endangered species too. And so to me, it just seems that the, the preservationists have a lot of money. They have a lot of legal power and they do have some supporters in very important roles. They have allies in the federal government now who are attuning their rulemaking to these lawsuits and to the demands of special interests like the Center for Biological Diversity, National Natural Resources Defense Council, PETA, Sierra Club, all these types. These are very, very powerful special interests who largely give to the Democratic Party. And they're never challenged so much. I don't know if, if it's um, conservationists of all political stripes coming together to create outfits to combat them legally, politically. I know there are uh, different groups on the hunting and recreational fishing side that do, uh, but I think probably um, different conservation stakeholders will probably come together recognizing, you know, even if I'm not adjacent to Maine lobstering, th these special interest groups are going to attack my livelihood, my ability to do this, my ability to run a business or my ability to offer produce to people. So I think it comes down to, yes, fixing the laws and fighting them tooth and nail in the courts as well. And I think we could, and there are people who are doing that um, in other areas of wildlife conservation, but they are very, it, it, it's, it's out there. They are very powerful, but I don't think they can be untouchable. I think there is a way to kind of erode their successes in the courts and challenge them in the court of public opinion. It's, it's starting to happen. It's just gonna take a lot of effort. Yeah, Gabrielle Hoffman joining us. I'm going to borrow something from our progressive friends a little bit here because I think it fits. But there's a disproportionality to these workers because you mentioned it in your piece. This is a $1.4 billion industry that's hinged on 4,500 people. That's an amazing ratio. Mm -hmm. So when you're talking about an industry that's that lucrative, and yes, it's a luxury item now, but it wasn't always that. Lobster used to be the garbage food that the fishermen kept for themselves because nobody else wanted it if you go back 100 years, believe it or not. This is this is very much something that has emerged and built a market for itself, and it's hinging on only 4,500 people. This is one of those areas where the regulation should really, you mm -hmm. know, not to go all socialist on everybody for a second or up with people, but these workers really do need protection because the proportionality of such a small workforce for such a large sector of an economic thing 
they really do seem to need some protections here, not regulations forcing them out of existence. It should be going the other way, shouldn't it? Shouldn't they be getting extra protections? Like, hey, this is a lot of money and a lot of people benefiting from a very small group of people. We should be looking at giving them a little bit of benefits. Maybe not, you know, preferential treatment, but certainly they should get some considerations here, not the other way around. Is that a fair way to look at it? I think so. And it doesn't really have to go along the lines of collective bargaining or things like that. I think people just on the outset can recognize, and I don't really want the government to meddle with them even more, but I think what we're seeing on the ground now with uh, private interests coming to their aid financially and morally and legally, uh, all these different stakeholders and, and people who are vouching for the main lobstermen, I think they could create an apparatus even outside of government to say, let's insulate our folks and let's help them and protect them and shield them from future attacks. I'm not sure if it comes in the form of uh, greater protections in the Maine legislature, maybe in Maine's, I have to look through this for a future reference, but I think maybe in um, maybe the Maine legislature already tries to protect them, but we don't see that obviously reflected in federal lawmaking because they don't view them as an essential industry. They probably view them, this administration in particular, probably views these individuals as contributing to a lot of problems, much like how they would perceive oil and gas developers. I feel like they put them all in the same camp. They're different industries, but they view them as extractive and negative, and they're not having a positive impact on the landscape, which is not how we should be viewing these individuals. And I think a lot of people don't understand in terms of where we fall on, on this chain and, and where these conservationists fall on this chain. You may complain about, you know, lobsters are contributing to the demise of one particular species, and let's get rid of it. So what, what happens when you do that? you're going to create these secondary effects and it's ultimately going to hit the consumers. Whether or not you consume lobstermen, it's going to hit you somehow. It's going to, you won't see it. You won't see it in banquets. You won't see it at events. You won't see it at your lobster shack or your seafood shack. Much like with oil and gas, you call for the dissolution and development of it by an arbitrary deadline. It's going to have drought stream effects a little differently than lobster, removing lobster wood because you're seeing more so um, people's livelihoods hit rather than seeing a total collapse, I would say, in the economy. Um, but but they, they both have deleterious impacts if you were to eliminate them. Um, and they would have a lot of downstream effects for consumers, for those respective industries. It's not good to put these conservationists in a bind and make it difficult for them to operate because they're going out of their way, like I said, to make accommodations. They are willing partners. They want conversations at the table. From what I've read from different reports, and I've been getting emails from different kind of lobster interests, like lobster unions, and then like people in kind of like trade associations. So different people have been reaching out to me and saying, we really appreciate your work on this issue. So even people who may not necessarily um, agree all the time, I think the the lobstermen, the cause of the lobstermen has unified a lot of different factions in, in Maine and even outside of Maine. And so when they see people understand their industry, they'll come to you and say, hey, could we talk or we'd love to hear your feedback. We'd love to share ideas, things of that sort. And so um, I think I don't know what, what kind of protections I'm, I'm not so <laughs> coherent or well versed on on what would need to be done, because I don't want, um, let's say, the government to come in under good intentions and then, you know, create monopolies or things of that sort. I'm, I'm always worried about that. But I think they have to be recognized at least as an essential business who's contributing to sustainable fisheries. In the past, we would never really see um, either one political party go after lobstermen, but these, like I said, these radical preservationists have a very, very iron, very firm iron grip now. 
because they see that they're losing power um, when certain things are ceded to normalcy. People like to see true conservation win. And true conservation has worked in this country. And we don't need to be pitting the interests of keeping a healthy economy with environmental stewardship. That's why I've done my podcast. That's why I go fishing and hunting myself. I believe that I live, eat, and breathe it. I could you know, benefit from doing these activities more according to my busy schedule. But at, on the surface, I believe this. There are many others out there, all of us, e whether you're immediately involved or even removed from it. People do want these two kind of spheres to to meet and, and to work together. And it's very possible. We've done a great stewardship model that's the envy of the world. Is it perfect? No, by no means. Nothing is perfect. But compared to other countries, having these different standards, allowing people to be productive and successful, all the while seeing species rebound, we won't see dolphins, whales, and others rebound if it wasn't for a fisherman, commercial or recreational. We wouldn't see iconic species like grizzly bears, gray wolves, American bald eagles rebound if it wasn't for hunters because of all the monies that go in to help endangered species get off the endangered species list and to make their full recovery. So people don't know what they're attacking. They don't understand kind of the the pipeline that exists. They don't understand who are the true conservation stakeholders and that these special interests, they come about this from the outside. They have no involvement. They just like to sue. And they say, we know what's better for everyone. They don't get to know these individuals. They don't know them as humans. They really don't care. They're kind of bulldozers and they want to bulldoze them out of their path for financial gain and with no gain to the environment. So it's, it's a very dangerous course we'll be if this preservationist philosophy of environmentalism continues to prevail. But I think there's an appetite with the American people to return to, or to rather adhere to true conservation, which allows for both the lobstermen and the right whales to coexist and exist. Yeah, Gabriella Hoffman joining us. Let's wrap this up by going through that nomenclature, though. Preservation versus conservation versus environmentalism. I don't call myself an environmentalist because the word's kind of gotten toxic in a lot of okay. ways, but but I am a conservation. Look, I grew up in the woods. I grew up in West Virginia. I love the outdoors. Preservation is important. There's things that need to be preserved. Sure. Monument Valley needs to be preserved. There's mm -hmm. no commercial reason, natural resource that needs to be preserved. Anwar is the size of South Carolina. Mm -hmm. We can carve out a couple acres here and there mm -hmm. for some oil or whatever the case may be. Those are two different things, but both of those get labeled with preservation. Yes. But they're very different. Preserving, you know, a historic house in the city is one thing. Preserving something the size of a state, we need to have a conversation about some mm -hmm. free use. How do we have a better conversation about that? Not just policy-wise or lawmaking-wise, but also on our social media accounts and when we're just talking amongst ourselves. That terminology is really important. It's something we skim over, but we shouldn't because the language there really, really matters. I'll throw you another great word on there, old school world. My conservation comes from the way I grew up and was raised out in the country of stewardship, which is another good word, word that fits in here. How do we start talking about this in a better way? I think on an individual level, I'm starting to do this. I've been lecturing to different student groups across the country in the last year. I talk about this on my podcast in my writings. And if I have the fortune ever to write a book, I think my first book would be about how conservation is conservative and then explaining about it from a big picture kind of way, the differentiation, and then obviously hooking it in with how conservatives can do this. But it's a philosophy that's open to everyone, not just conservatives. But I really want to personally hone in on that more. And I think 
um, with my individual efforts, a lot of people have started to use that. They've started to use the moniker conservationist conservative. I don't have a trademark to it, but I, I've kind of made it popular in a sense in some circles. So people see me do it and they're like, okay, we'll do this too. And so maybe I've started a trend in that respect. So I think individually, um, that's what you have to do. You have to explain the difference. Like you said, there are certain places where preservation is paramount. I recently went to different sites in Arizona and Utah to, Utah to highlight areas where conservation are great versus where preservation works. I think in the national park system, the 63 national parks, and then they're adjacent kind of like public lands too with it. It's complicated kind of framework, but very easy to understand when you dig into it. So I think there's pretty wide consensus about keeping the national parks, which are off limits to any type of multiple use activities, except for let's say recreating, hiking, things of that sort, and occasionally fishing and very rarely sometimes hunting in like maybe one or two national parks, but largely kept off limits to extraction of any type or recreational hunting or fishing in most cases, bar none for hunt, uh, hiking. Um, people agree with keeping that because there's something beautiful about these national treasures. You go to elsewhere across the world, there are their national parks are not really that impressive. We do a great job, even with some of the bureaucratic inefficiencies. They're not really good with upkeep of national parks. That's why the Great American Outdoors Act was passed to give permanent funding to certain funds within that law to ensure that the roads are built well, the structures are kept intact, we can accommodate more people, more visitors to the parks. That's great. And then when it comes to the to the more kind of complicated tiers of public lands like national monuments, national monuments can either be preserved or conserved. But I worry that the Biden administration is using national monuments as a way to designate land that should be open to multiple uses to make it secluded and eventually prepare them for a national park. And not everything should be a national park. And I know it's counterintuitive for someone who likes going outdoors to say that, but not every area should be given that designation. It should be for an exceptional area. And then you can keep national monuments open to multiple uses um, and, and keep it that way because not everything should be a national park. Then it kind of dilutes what a national park is, um, even though there are 400 some odd properties in the National Park Service. Then you have Bureau of Land Management and, and for, uh, Forest Service lands, which should be open to multiple uses, whether you are cattle, ranching, timber, harvesting, um, and many, many other types of things, hunting, fishing, running a guiding business, things of that sort. So we already have the infrastructure in place, very much so to do that. And um, and I think also visiting these areas personally, it's one to say, yes, you know, let's let's make everything into a national park or yes, you know, preservation everywhere. But when you go to meet local people in these areas, these are often rural communities. And I've had the pleasure of meeting a lot of said individuals, county commissioners, activists. I've traveled to Idaho, I've traveled to Utah, to Arizona, and I'm gonna be traveling to more places to talk to different people who are important members of their community um, opposing big government overreach or big scale questionable renewable projects. And it helps to visit these people, to hear their concerns, to learn about them, to learn about the areas they live. What is at stake if you were to build large scale projects, so-called renewable projects, where the energy that's going to be harnessed is gonna go out of state in the case of Idaho. That's something I learned there. Um, so visiting these places is extremely pivotal. Not only are you gonna have a great experience, if you get to interact with the locals, you're going to learn so much more about you and about the country than you ever would. And I think too many people, whether they live in the Acela Corridor or Metropolis, they're still very removed. And so when they come about saying, yeah, let's have preservation everywhere in every corner of the United States, you don't understand that not every place is the same. You can't have a big size fits all kind of attitude because every locality has different demands, has different interests, has different challenges with landscape and 
financial needs, things of that sort. So what works in one place may not work in another place in a top, top down size, big size fits all kind of framework. And so that's what people don't understand. What New York City wants is not what, let's say, Twin Falls, Idaho wants. Everywhere is different. So going outdoors, enjoying national parks, seeing what's out there is extremely important. A lot of people have been recreating outdoors in response to the COVID pandemic, which is a silver lining, a positive development to come out of all this mess. Um, but it really takes going outside your echo chamber, going outside the Ivy Tower, meeting with people and having an open dialogue and a conversation, getting to know people and not imposing your views, which is what a lot of these preservationists do. So learning the nomenclature is important. Visiting these areas, talking to locals, having an understanding of why they may be opposed to top-down government overreach, why they like to do things their way, why they're not backwards and wanting to have that, and why they support multiple uses when it comes to public land or um, having private property rights when they're managing property rights and whenever their land falls on public lands and those disputes ensue. And so it, it's not difficult. It shouldn't be difficult. And if I can help lead the way with the conversation, if people want to, a guide, I would like to be the Sherpa <laughs> with with conservation, I guess, um, in that. Because it's super easy to understand. I can't be the only person talking about this. And so I could give people a template to run with and, and to go. Um, th there's a lot of uh, things at play and, and we can help change the conversation and move away from environmentalism. Because like you said, it's a dirty word. I don't call myself environmentalist. I say conservationist. And you make the distinction of these two spheres of environmentalism. It makes it much more clear. We can resonate with people who are kind of in the middle. If you're coming from a center-right perspective, they love hearing that term better because environmentalism has become a very su sullied word. Um, and it, it needs a lot of rehabilitating. So I think conservation is the better word to use when you want to appeal to people for stewardship and, and all that. Yep. And I would encourage, I'm going to be selfish, all you DC folks, if you'll just look out and turn left and go a couple hours over to West Virginia, you'll come to a lot and help my state out economically a little bit. I'd appreciate that. Great outdoor stuff there. You'll find it all over. Just a hop, skip and a jump from, I think the Metro runs almost right into the panhandle now. So you can do it. Go out and get out, touch grass, touch some trees. Yes. Gabriella Hoffman, one of our favorites. You've heard it advertised right here on this program. She has a great podcast. Thank where she you, delves Andrew. into all this stuff districts of conservation let folks know about that since they hear the commercial about it uh let them know where they can find that let them know your very busy schedule where you're writing where you're tweeting <laughs> your own little newsletter that kind of condenses all that let folks know how to keep up with you my friend yes very briefly thank you again also for pushing the podcast it really means a lot to have supporters like you so yes on any podcast player i prefer directing people to apple that's the best channel to listen but we have a lot of actually interviews this month, even though it's we're going into the holiday season. Lots of great content. I've been interviewing some really cool up and comers and newsmakers that aren't really known kind of in the political space. So I hope people check out the podcast this week in particular. I spoke to some really great stakeholders all across the board. One individual, one gentleman who brought me down and a whole host of women to go deer hunting, um, some newbies. I'm kind of in the advanced beginner stage. And so I talked about his nonprofit and he's a serial entrepreneur, really fascinating guy. And he was just so generous in opening his family farm to us and, and to others. And so I really like his story and I want other listeners to, to learn about it. I spoke to a uh, expert on cataloging firearm statistics from Heritage Foundation. She's really great. Amy Swear, um, probably one of the most interesting people cataloging um, this. And then I spoke to the director of the Virginia Fly Fishing and Wine Festival in an episode coming out tomorrow to talk about riparian rights and access areas, his new book on veterans fishing, and then what to expect at the upcoming Fly Fishing and Wine Festival near Richmond, Virginia early next year. 
And so I like to interview people and, and bring regular folks to the forefront because everyone loves to talk to politicians. Politicians are great. They may get you some hits, but I think these storytellers are far more impactful in my mind because they can go a long way in shaping opinion, bringing people into the fold. I just don't want to bring people who are just going to yak. I, I like doers. So I like bringing on doers to the podcast. Um, yes, I have a Substack that comes out every Friday. I also have a MailChimp that comes out Monday. And the Substack kind of goes into detail more. It's called Outsider on the Inside. And once we get enough subscribers, I may start to create some kind of exclusive content. I won't take away from traditional access, but I may add some enhanced kind of exclusive features, maybe previewing interviews like a first listen for reasonable rates when I get about a thousand subscribers. So for now, <laughs> subscribers can enjoy the content for free and then we will add supplemental content to not take away from what I'm already putting out there. But yeah, it's kind of a repository of news you may have missed in, in the conservation space and elsewhere. So yes, and social media, blue check marks everywhere, very easy to find me. Young Voices, I'm a regional leader. Um, that's how Andrew and I, of course, connected. It's a great program. We're looking forward to our upcoming uh, classes for 2023. We have some new contributors on the horizon from my understanding. So really looking forward to that. And yeah, I have other roles, too many roles to list, multi-hyphenate. Um, but yes, you can Google me and find me almost anywhere writing regularly for Town Hall. So thank you, Andrew, for having me. Always fun to talk to you. She's so busy that she's actually at home today recording and I didn't even recognize it because I'm so used to talking to her in a hotel room <laughs> somewhere because you're a busy bee. It's a great podcast. You do great work. You become a good friend. That's why we keep you as a regular here on Herd Tell. Thank you so much for the time. Gabriella Hoffman, you're great. Of course. Thank you. Thank you, ma'am. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Herd Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcast or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, he's back. Good friend of the program, Benjamin Hyanian, another one of our great Young Voices contributors. Been doing a lot of writing all over the place. We're going to talk a little third parties with him. How are you, sir? Good to see you again, my friend. I'm doing well. It's good to see you, too. Always, always happy to be here. Yeah, glad to have you back. Uh, we actually talked about this a couple weeks ago, and sure enough, just like clockwork, anytime we have an election, as soon as that election's over, everybody starts talking third parties again, so you got to peace out. Uh, in Insider. Let, let's let's hash this out for a second. Let's start historically, though. There have been third parties that have had some success in the history of the United States. You touch on it in your piece. 
the thing about it is these third parties usually pop up because of a specific issue that brings people into them. The problem with that is as soon as that issue dissipates, so does that third party. That's the history of it. So I think we need to start there because anytime somebody starts talking about, oh, we need a third party or, oh, we have a duopoly or whatever. Well, yeah, but you have to have some kind of a force to knock you out of that. I don't really see one other than just general frustration. That ain't going to get it done. Oh, I, I agree with that sentiment fully. I mean, the American people keep, you know, responding in poll settings um, that they desire a third party to be present. We know a plurality of Americans identifies independence. However, you know, if we look deeper into the data, most of those independents do consistently vote um, one way or the other. You know, they either lean heavily Democrat or lean heavily Republican. And so general frustration with the duopoly certainly is not enough um, to elevate a third party into, you know, a competitive landscape, but um, which I'm sure we'll get into. I think there's plenty of of other things that can be done to at least give better access to third parties to give them you know a better chance to compete and in addition to that to expand the number of choices in the american psyche yeah benjamin i ain't even joining us you just touched on it so let's just talk about it right now a third party on a national level let's say just president because that's the one everybody thinks about if you're going to be a third party national candidate for president there is a huge uh, logistical and infrastructure problem to doing that. You have to individually get on the ballot in all 50 states, plus the territories for that matter. That involves a lot of stuff. There are signature requirements. There are various requirements to get into. And every state's different because some states have open primaries. Some states have closed primaries. So, you know, I'm, a, I'm one of those unaffiliated voters. So when I go to a primary, I have to ask for one ballot or the other, you know, that sort of stuff. That's part of the dynamic that a third party or an independent run always faces. Changing that would take a lot of legislation and a lot of change. I think that's where the polling and the facts on the ground hit, because I don't think there's a big appetite for people to really grind out and do that. No, and especially there's not, you know, a big appetite from current political leaders to want to help give greater access to third parties. You know, if I'm a Democrat or if I'm a Republican, you know, in um, legislatures, what incentive do I have to, to make elections more competitive against me? That's one thing Democrats and Republicans can consistently agree on is that third party access is not a great thing um, for either of them. So there's an issue that they can come together on. And so there is a logistical nightmare especially in some states you know for example um i linked to this in the article that i just wrote that you know in, in tennessee it's extremely hard to get on the ballot as a third party you know in order to become a recognized minority party in tennessee a petition must be submitted um, and that petition needs the signatures of registered voters equal to at least two and a half percent of the total number of votes in the last gubernatorial race. And so Democrats and Republicans in that state, on the other hand, only need 25 signatures each um, to get you know, their candidates on the ballot in that state. And so there are really restrictive laws out there that do hamper minority party access. And I think um, if that is going to change, this needs to become a more important issue for enough people um, and whether or not 
that's feasible we will see you know like you said frustration is not enough to push you know this desire for third parties over the top and into um the reality of our political landscape but it is a start and so it needs in my opinion to be capitalized on um and people ought to care more about you know third party access because why would we continue to go to the ballot box every year look at two options that we do not feel good about um, continue pulling the lever continue seeing that things are going in the wrong direction and just kind of throw our hands up and say oh well you know these are the only two options it's just how things work that's not something that i'm able to just sit back and accept Yeah, Benjamin Ianian, you bring up another point about voting here. Uh, ranked choice voting, which on paper deals with some of these issues about letting other candidates and other parties deal with. The only problem is we got some data now. Alaska just did this, and it was an absolute cluster. Uh, the Alaska ranked choice voting did not go well. It was a mess. Other states have messed with uh, versions of ranked choice voting. You know, California has their top two system. Other states are going to start playing around with this what's the path forward on this? Like, And look, to be fair to ranked choice voting, you know, it's only as good as it's implemented. So you can have a great idea and badly implement it. So I don't want to just say the idea is bad, but so far it's not working great. How could that change some of this if we just do a different way of voting that would maybe give some more access that way without rehashing the entire system? Well, yeah, so, I mean, what I would say about ranked choice voting, we actually have had ranked choice voting elections in plenty of other states and granted in smaller, you know, local elections. California actually did have um, a few cities have elections with ranked choice voting. And the, you know, data came back that, you know, almost every ballot that was cast was, was valid. And, you know, the vast majority of individuals who took part in those elections came out and said that you know they were simple and easy to understand the process was um and if we actually look at exit polling from ranked choice voting um the majority of people who take part in them say that they are simple um, and easy to understand that could just be a status quo bias you know people who do um ranked choice voting they like it because it's what they just did people who do other forms of election they say they like it because it's the type of election they just um, took part in so there could just be a status quo bias there but i don't think ranked choice voting um, is as much of a mess i mean in, in 2022 in alaska as you mentioned you know eight and a half out of ten voters reported that ranked choice voting was simple um, and easy for them to understand i know the Wall Street Journal, um, their op-ed section wrote a long article about how much of a mess they felt the Alaska election was. Um, and I do think that they had some valid critiques. But at the end of the day, I don't see um, our current system as allowing the American voter or incentivizing them to become more informed about other options. So if I know the Democrat or the Republican is going to win, um, I might feel as though my vote for a third party or an independent is merely just a spoiler vote. Um, I don't think that that is true, but it, but ranked choice voting would at least eliminate um, this idea that votes are meant to just be spoilers if they're not for one of the top two parties. Um, so I think that the American public would at least be able to feel okay 
about looking at independents, about looking at third party candidates, and even placing them as their first choice without fearing that their vote is going to place their least favorite candidate in Washington, D.C. Yeah, Benjamin Ianian joining us. This gets to the old, and you ended your piece talking about the lesser two evils nonsense. Look, I just did a rant on this the other day. Like, look, when I look at my ballot, if I don't have anybody that's qualified for the role, I'm not voting for him anymore. I'm just not going to do it anymore because that's me putting my name on it, and I'm not doing it. Sorry, y'all, y'all justify it however you want to. I'm not doing it anymore. I really wonder if that means there's just certain offices I'll never get a vote for anybody ever again because there ain't nobody good running for, but so be it. There's a lot of people that feel that way. They're just tired of the lesser of two evils mess. The obvious choice of that is to get more options in there, but it's not that simple. We can rant about the duopoly, though, but what's the path forward for this? Is it going to take, like we've seen historically, like we started with, some major issue where a third party rises up around that major issue? Is it going to be just these two parties continually consolidating the power we're seeing now where President Biden's going to be tinkering around with the primary schedule to make sure it goes the way he wants it? I don't see a third party rising anytime soon. Is that too negative, do you think, or do you agree with that? Um, I think being realistic, um, anytime soon, you're probably right. I don't think we have, honestly, a great choice for a third party right now, which is unfortunate because I feel as though some of the parties out there are squandering this great opportunity. Um, the Libertarian Party um, has had some new leadership come into power over the last couple of years, and um, it feels to me that you know their party has become increasingly um, more of a mess. Um, I do personally um, hold you know, libertarian ideals, you know, their classical liberal caucuses, you know, those individuals are the ones I tend to agree with on public policy issues. Um, but the leadership of the party seems to have gone a little bit off the rails and their messaging um, is not good. And so I think, for example, they're squandering an opportunity to gain more support. In Arizona, they had a candidate that was polling um, over five or six percent and then dropped out and endorsed Blake Masters. I don't think that, you know, that's good. You know, they could have shown on a ballot that hey look we we can increase our you know voter share um instead their candidate um opted not to do that and endorsed a republican you have andrew yang who's trying to start the forward party it seems like he's looking for more of a gap in the market um his type of approach is well the there's a majority on a lot of issues so whatever the majority holds, that's the position our party is going to adopt. It's a really odd way. It feels more like a business trying to cater to consumers um, from that sense. So there's not a lot of great options for third parties right now. So one thing we do need is third parties to kind of get their act together. Um, but on top of that is the American psyche needs to have the opportunity and the freedom to be able to look at other parties. And if we as voters were able to care more and be able to give them more time of day because of a different system, then I think third parties might be a little bit more responsive um, to, you know, the voters that they could potentially um, swing to their side to become more competitive in elections. The issue is with our current voting system, and the restrictive laws against third parties, I don't think we're anywhere near a third party having a chance because I think Americans rightfully look at the election and go, yeah, I mean, if I vote for them, there's no way they win anyway. 
Um, granted, if you vote for one of the top, one of the two parties, Republicans or Democrats, the odds that you break a tie are so low. So, I mean, either way, how much does it really matter in this system? I'm not sure. Um, but I do understand the point that if you vote for a third party, they're probably not going to win anyway. So that's why I think we need structural changes and how that happens. It's probably going to have to come from enough people caring about this issue and um, really advocating for institutional change because people don't come together. We're not going to see it. No, I don't think they will. Benjamin Ianian, uh, always enjoy talking about this stuff. Where can they find the piece? We're going to link to it as well. And where can folks keep up with you until we get you back on Hertel again, my friend? Yeah, the piece I just wrote, you can find on Inside Sources. It's actually a, a syndication um, publication, so it will be in other newspapers as well. Um, and you can find me on Twitter at Benjamin Ianian. Andrew, it's always good talking to you. Yeah, appreciate you coming on here. We don't need a third party to have you back, buddy. Always appreciate you. We'll be talking again soon, my friend. Another one of our great Young Voices contributors. Talk soon, buddy. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Herd Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics, from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutan. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find the Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com.